We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. Well, here we are in the fourth week of the long, slow, sustained period of preparation for Easter that we call Lent. And think about this. For nearly 1,900 years, the church has been led by the Spirit of God to challenge Christians to take 40 days to prepare for Easter. This is the work of God's Spirit in the church saying to us, you and me, we need to prepare for Easter. And, and not just like go out and get a new pair of you know, pants, a new set of clothes, and get some eggs to paint. But we need a long, slow preparation of our souls for Easter. And, and, and that, that preparing for Easter is a journey, a physical and spiritual pilgrimage. And the way that we're to go on this physical and spiritual journey is through some disciplines. That the church has for centuries, literally for nearly 1900 years, the church has called us to prayer and fasting, to intensive scripture reading, and to, in a serious way, simplifying your life for this period of 40 days. Why? Because these are unique, God-given tools that lead us deeply into repentance. So these are gifts of the Spirit. Scripture reading and prayer and fasting and simplifying our life. These are unique gifts that God has given the church that we are to engage with at a deeper level than we normally engage with, not as an end unto themselves, but so that we are led to repentance. Alexander Schmemann's masterful insight, Lent, is a school of repentance to which every Christian must go every year in order to deepen his faith, to reevaluate, and to change his life. Lent. It's a school of repentance. Now, if you've been seriously giving yourself to this journey, uh, I've never been in a church where the, the percentage of people are fasting that is going on in our church right now. Now, it's easier when the numbers are smaller, I know, But it's amazing to me that from our children all the way up, the vast majority of our church is really engaging with these disciplines. And if you're one of those that's been seriously doing this, not not just introducing a few symbolic changes into your daily life, but if you have really committed yourself to this long, slow, sustained, consistent journey, then you've been brought face to face. With the brutal truth. That that song we just sang. That deep in your heart. There is wickedness. And it's not just. A reaction. It's a character. It's not just a behavior. It's your nature. John Calvin put it this way. He said the human heart. Is a perpetual factory of idols. 
You know, in the 70s, you you could see the air in Birmingham. Those factories were churning out pollution at an unstoppable rate. And your heart is more unstoppable than those factories were. It churns out idol after idol after idol after idol. Victor Hugo saw the truth of this in Les Miserables. He describes it in the person of Jean Valjean, a a passage that I have never forgotten from the first time my eyes saw it. He said of Jean Valjean exactly, I think, what is true of me and you. Nobody caught a glimpse of the nether gloom. Who could have guessed such a thing? There are such marshes in India. The water seems strange, inexplicably quivering when there is no wind, agitated where it should be calm. You see upon the surface this causeless boiling. You do not perceive the hydra crawling at the bottom. Many men have a secret monster, a disease which they feed, a dragon which gnaws them, a despair which inhabits their night. Such a man resembles other people, goes, comes. Nobody knows that he has within him a fearful parasite with a thousand teeth, which lives in the miserable man who is dying of it. Nobody knows that this man is a gulf. It is stagnant, but deep. And from time to time, a troubling of which we understand nothing shows itself on its surface. A mysterious wrinkle comes along, then vanishes, then reappears. A bubble of air rises and bursts. It is a little thing. It is terrible. It is the breathing of the unknown monster. See, Victor Hugo is describing our souls. And God is calling us in the season of Lent to face the monster, to face the terrible truth of our wickedness. Why? So that we'll repent. Why? Because repentance is the beginning and the condition of the truly Christian life. And tonight, we turn a corner. That's where we've been walking for three weeks. For three weeks, this has been the purpose of Lent. To go on this dark journey to face the idle factory of your own heart. But tonight... We see that's not the end of the journey. In this incredible chapter that Allison just read to us, Luke chapter 15, we see that repentance is not the end. Repentance is a doorway into joy. The joy of our maker and redeemer. Repentance is the necessary condition for the joy of heaven. That's Luke chapter 15. That's Psalm chapter 32. Look with me. At Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. If you have a Bible, if not, there's some in your pews. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him to hear him. Now if you were there, you would have been shocked. Uh, Thieves and traitors, murderers and prostitutes hanging out with Jesus. And not just hanging out in an audience. No, 
They're laughing and joking and eating together. Now, forget for a moment that it offends our contemporary sensibilities to call these people sinners, social outcasts. Remember, this was written 2,000 years ago in a, in a society that was far more puritanical in its public virtue than Victorian England, okay? This was a very um, serious society about issues of honor and shame. And in that society, these people that Jesus is not preaching to, but is having a party with, They're unclean. They're contemptible. They're the dregs of society. And in that culture, for a religious leader to be seen eating with them, when eating with someone is not something you just merely do. Eating is an act of receiving someone into a deep friendship. That's what's going on here. So it comes as no surprise that in verse 2, The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, who are very conscientious of God's law, they grumble. They say, this man receives sinners and he eats with them? Now now picture the scene, okay? Picture this in front of you. It's a nice sunny day in Palestine. Hustling, bustling village. There's a market. You can smell the baked bread. There's like children running around in and out of groups of adults. There's couple of guys bartering over a sheep. And then there's Jesus. He's at this group of tables that have all been pushed together. They they would have been really low on the ground. They would have been laying on their side up to these very low tables, eating together. And and, and, and the table's strewn with the cups and bowls and plates and half-eaten food. And it's loud and obnoxious. And they're not, you know, it's one of those times where you're having so much fun, you don't even notice the other people around you. And then there's this group of very impressive looking religious leader with their lily white reputations and their perfect smiles and their designer togas and their vicious gossip. And they're whispering and they're staring and they're disgusted at what's happening. (laughs) Of all the days in Scripture... This is one of the days that I wish I could have been there. Here he is at this table. And there are these Pharisees. And Jesus stands up. And the whole place gets silent. 30, 40 pairs of eyes on this man. What's he going to say? What's he going to do? But he's not scared. He's calm. He's this religious leader surrounded by expendables. Looking at the non-expendables. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep? If he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors and he says to them, rejoice with me for I found the sheep that was lost. Now, I read it really fast because it's very hard to translate into English. 
but the, this was originally written in Greek, and it's one sentence. It's one series of cumulative rhetorical questions climaxing with the single obvious question. Isn't the coming home of the lost but found sheep the occasion for celebrating with friends and neighbors? That's the big question. Can you see the scene? He's, he's staring at the religious leaders and he asks them that. It's his response to their grumbling. It's his response to their questioning, to their accusation. This man receives sinners and he even eats with them. And then look what he says in verse 7. Just in case you don't get the point of my story, just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over a whole group of very religious people who obviously don't need to repent. Now, go back to verse 1. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near. What's that word? To hear him. Now, we tend to stop and start reading our Bibles based on subject headings. But if there was no subject heading before that, you would have read the previous sentence. And what does it say? It's Jesus saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the sinners and tax collectors were drawing near to hear. Do do you see that? In other words, they are doing what God says you need to do in order to be in on God's action. Go back, in fact, to chapter 7, verse 29. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors also, literally, in, in, and even the tax collectors, holy cow, even those bad dudes. They declared God just. In other words, they responded in such a way that God was justified. He was proven true, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now go back to chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Talking about John He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance. That's the baptism the tax collectors in chapter 7, verse 29, had been baptized with. That's the guys who in chapter 14, last verse, had heard him say, who has ears to hear? And then chapter 15, were drawing near to him. Look at verse 12 of chapter 3. And even the tax collectors came to be baptized. Do you see it? The reason Jesus is eating with these guys in chapter 15, the reason that he is receiving these sinners into friendship is because they've repented. Luke, in chapter 15, assumes you've read his whole gospel. He assumes you saw chapter 3, verse 3, chapter 3, verse 12, chapter 7, verse 29. He assumes you see that these guys, they've repented. And repentance in Luke's gospel is a fundamental response to the gospel. It is the inescapable condition of entering the kingdom of God. So back to chapter 15, verse 7. Heaven has parties. When people who've lost their way come home to God. Why is Jesus having a party with these guys? Because he reflects what's going on in heaven. Because he shares the father's heart. The father's rejoicing. The father's celebrating. So the son. So Jesus. If these guys have come home. All of heaven erupts in joy when even one. Much less a plural. A gathering. 
who have lived a life away from the Father have come home to the Father. And then he tells another story and he raises the stakes. It's not one sheep out of a hundred sheep for a wealthy landowner. It's one coin out of ten for a peasant woman who doesn't even have a window in her house. She has to light a lamp to, to get some light in the room. One-tenth of her life savings. This is serious. This is more serious than one one-hundredth. This is urgent. And again, in verse 8 through 9, literally, it's one huge cumulative avalanche of questions that climax with the obvious. Isn't the act of celebrating the only appropriate response to the catastrophic loss of life savings when it's been found? And again, in verse 10, Jesus draws out the main point. He's responding with these stories. He's responding to the accusations of the Pharisees. He's giving an explanation for his unheard of behavior. Why is he doing what he's doing? He's feasting with tax collectors and sinners because God is celebrating the fact that they've come home. And then in verse 11, he raises the stakes again. Not one out of a hundred sheep, not one out of ten coins, one out of two sons. This, surely if a lost sheep is important, a lost coin, surely a lost son. This demands. Did you see how Jesus is ratcheting up the emotional intensity? As valuable as sheep and coins might be, the loss and recovery of a son Surely it's even greater. And then he tells this incredible story of this younger brother that's basically a popular Middle Eastern caricature of the little brother. Lazy and irresponsible, covetous and greedy. As soon as he told that part, everybody would say, yeah, that's how they are. You know, all the older brother religious leaders would have said, yeah, I got one of those in my family. When, when, when a father died in that culture, the younger son would have been due part of the estate. But the actual disposition of property prior to the father's death, now that would have been odd. And at the son's instigation, it would have been extraordinary. It's tantamount to the son saying, Dad, you know when you die, I'm going to get an inheritance. Can we pretend your death has already occurred? And that's just the beginning of his downward spiral. The father not only divides up the inheritance, the boy does whatever it takes at that point to con- Convert that into transportable capital because he takes it and leaves. You know what that means? He sold out. He liquidated. Against the protestations of everybody who was left who needed that inheritance to continue. And then he leaves the family and he goes to a far country. He not only leaves the family, he's leaving his religion. He's living as a Gentile, this deteriorating situation. And then famine strikes and having wasted everything, as as does occur in an agrarian society, he plummets through the levels of status. He goes from being the son of a wealthy landowner to the status of unclean and degraded, which is lower even than that of the status of a common day Labor. Remember, it says in verse 13, he went on a far journey. In verse 17, Jesus says no one gave him anything. You see, outside of Israel, in the Greco-Roman world of that time period, you did not give 
alms to the beggars. A very famous playwright, Titus Plautus, he famously wrote, He does the beggar a bad service who gives him meat and drink. For what he gives is lost, and the life of the poor is prolonged to their own misery. Why did Jesus say no one gave him anything? Because Jesus wants you to know this guy went on a journey to get out of Dodge. He not only left the father, he not only left the village, he left the country, he left the whole culture. He abandoned everything. He completely rejects and turns his back on God. But then it all changes in verse 17. He came to himself. Verse 18, he said, I will arise and go to my father. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. And then in verse 20, he doesn't even get through his whole confession when his father is running and embracing and kissing and giving gifts, clothes and a ring and sandals, all symbols that he has been restored completely to the status of son. And then in verse 23, once again, Jesus makes the point. What it says. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat. And so remember where the chapter started, Jesus eating and celebrating. Once again, Jesus is saying repentance is the doorway to restoration, which sparks a party. Sets off a full blown banquet, the best and most expensive beef. This would have been far too much meat for one household, especially a household of just two sons. Some Estimate that this party could have satisfied anywhere from 35, depending on a whole lot of factors, to 100 people. This was the entire village. Throw a party, not just a party for you and me and the servants, but a party for the whole, just like before, right? The woman calls together. Just throw a party for everyone. Spare no effort, spare no expense. Can you imagine? Picture this son, this son walking home in his clothes that are in tatters. The stink of pigs still on him. The smell of death. Head down, not daring to look up. Humiliated, ashamed, fully aware that he's wasted everything that he was given. Brought nothing but shame and heartache to his. Can you imagine that moment when he looks up? He sees his dad running in a culture where wealthy landowners never run. He sees his dad shaming himself at an embarrassing, extravagant display of joy. Can you imagine that? It must have been like a flood. It it must have been like a wave of water. Crashing into this to suddenly see that there had not been one minute that he was out of his father's mind. Not one minute that he was out of the father's heart. That in his father's heart there had always been and was still a safe place for him. What an incredible moment. 
Can you imagine what the tax collectors and sinners were feeling in that moment when Jesus put into words exactly what they had sensed from their creator? And look at verse 24. He was dead. He was dead to the family, dead to the religion, and nearly dead. He had descended to such a place in society. Nobody gave them food, and the mortality rate was through the roof. He was physically on the verge of death. That's not just a metaphorical statement. He was death walking. And that fast. He's eating the fattened calf. He was lost. He had been lost to the family, lost to God. What an incredible picture of Lent. When you go on this journey and you see the hydra, the seething thousand-toothed monster in the depths of your soul, and you repent, and as soon as you repent, you discover the joy of the Father. But it doesn't end there. In verse 25, the elder son that we've not heard of since verse 11. And look at verse 12. The father divided his property between them. It wasn't only the younger son that got his share. The older son all along had been given his share too. Now his response is very different than the father's. Look in verse 20. Notice the effective response of the father. The father felt compassion. Now, look in verse 28. Notice the affective response of the elder brother. He was angry. The whole story is about the response to the lost coming home and being given a party, right? That's the whole thing Jesus is doing. He's justifying why he's having a party with these guys. First story, second story, it all climaxes in this rhetorical question. Isn't the party the only thing to do? And he gets to this verse in verse 28. And isn't the older son? We already have been told by Jesus the only natural thing to do is to respond. But then in verse 28, Jesus says not everybody responds that way. There are some who respond in anger. And who, by the way, in the setting of the whole thing, are angry. The Pharisees, the older son. It's interesting to compare his summary of the boy's journey to the narrator's summary. Go back and look at verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and he squandered his property in reckless living. But look how the older brother describes the son's journey to the father. Verse 29. Look, these many years I've never I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this young son of yours who has devoured your property with prostitutes, do you see how he ratchets up the scandal? And do you see how he doesn't even call him my brother? This son of yours. Do you remember when the younger son was in the pig pen? What he said, I will go to my father. Do you see how the older brother refers to the father? He doesn't. In other words, he said, your son, and I don't claim you as a father. All of the sudden, 
we discover that he's been a hundred yards from home, but a thousand miles from home. And he is estranged. He claims I've been obedient. I've done everything you said. He describes himself not as a son. His description of his own role in the family's life is that of a slave. He has changed his status from son to slave. And then he says something that really gives the hand to how far off he is from the family. He says, you wouldn't even give me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. Now, in that culture, that would have been a scandal that he wanted to have a party without his family and only with his friends. Isn't that exactly what the younger brother did? Had a party with his friends. But his was just cloaked in a nice toga and obedience. He's rejecting the family. Once again, the father responds with an embarrassingly extravagant display of shameful behavior. The father leaves the party that he is hosting, hosting to beg his son To come in. And in an honor-shame culture, the father was a loser at that point. This guy who had already ran when he shouldn't have run to receive a son back, he should have never received back. What kind of man begs his own son? Not in that culture. No self-respecting man does. The father rejects everything the son is saying. Look how the father refers to the son. Son, you won't call me father, but I'm still calling you son. Son, you're always with me. All that is mine is yours. I've never seen you as a slave. I've always seen you as a son. You only see yourself as a slave, but that's not the way I want it to be. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And it is the only story Jesus ever told without a resolution. Of all the stories recorded in the Bible, only this one. We don't know the ending. Why? Because Jesus was not merely explaining. He was not merely giving an explanation. He was giving an invitation. At that moment, he had stopped talking to the sinners and tax collectors gathered around him. And he was inviting the Pharisees to come and eat at the table. Literally, it was playing out right in front of them. He was saying, aren't I doing the only thing appropriate to do? And you older brothers. I want you back to. But he put a condition on it. For them to come back. They would have to embrace his joy over the restoration Of the tax collector. Well. When a landscape painter. Paints a mountain. He'll move around from spot to spot. Until he discovers the right perspective. For his picture. And it's the same way with this story. Which perspective is the right one for you? Which of these characters is a sketch of your life? Are you the older brother? 
doing exactly what you ought to do, respectable to everybody around, but under the surface, there's a crawling monster deep in your soul, and it comes out every now and then with an unexplicable response to a set of stimuli, but it's there, it is thousand-toothed, and it is gnawing, and it is killing you. And God knows, and you know, that you are a thousand miles from the heart of the Father. You fooled everybody else. Is that the right perspective for you? It's one thing to read scripture. It's another to let scripture read you. Are you the son, the younger son? You've made a mess. You've turned your back on everything and you have lost everything. And you are in the lowest place a human being could go. For both of you, the beauty is repentance will lead to the same party, the same joy, the same celebration. What a glorious thing to know that Jesus Christ in that moment was inviting the jerks who were going to kill him to the table. And he didn't stop then. You know what happens at the Last Supper? He does the same thing to Judas. Knowing that Judas was going to betray him. At the Last Supper, it's clear. He offers Judas the bread. And in Luke's Gospel Part 2, the Gospel of Acts, guess who it is that comes to the Father and makes the biggest splash? A Pharisee named Paul. Even then he doesn't give up on the Pharisees. How does this story end? We know how this part ends. Those Pharisees picked up a stick in the shape of a cross and they killed Jesus with it. But still today, he's saying to you and me, come to the party. Come in to me. What an incredible thing to have a father who waits. When I lived in England, once a month, I would get up very early while it was still dark and I would ride my bike a few miles across town to this um, train station. I would get on a train and I'd ride for a couple hours in the dark and then I'd change another train and go another couple hours and I'd get off the train and I'd walk a mile to this man's house, my, one of my supervisors, and I would sit in his house and he would... Um, mentor me in my academic research. At the end of the day, I would get back on the train, make that long journey. I would show up at the train station. I'd be one of the only ones at the train station that late at night. I'd get on my bike. I'd ride across a dark town that's already gone to sleep. And when I'd pull up to the front of my house, the light was on and Janelle was waiting up. It's an incredible thing to have someone waiting up for you. And I'm saying to us tonight, by the power of God, the Father is waiting up. If you would repent, He'll embrace you, give you the ring and the clothes and the sandals and kill the fatty calf because repentance is the doorway to the Father's joy. Let's pray.
Blessed are you, Lord God, King of this universe, who pursues us and woos us and even offers bread to us when we are in the midst of betraying you. Oh, Father, lead us this Lent to see the depth of our sin so that we can repent and come in to the joy of your heart. And Father, grow us, all of us, to be like the Father in this story, to become like the Father, welcoming others, exposing ourselves to ridicule as we shamelessly offer your heart to the expendables. Amen.